what is important? Like, what are your drivers? I think that it's really hard to make a change, especially a dietary change in a culture that's not supportive of it or where it's foreign or new or different. Um, relying on that internal drive, like why do you want to do it, can be really helpful, especially in moments that are more challenging or stressful when it might be easy to be like, oh, I'll just, you know, throw in the towel, whatever, I'll eat whatever. But really clinging on to that reason why you're doing it. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. If we have not connected before, my name is Dr. Caitlin Harkis. I am a clinical psychologist and a senior yoga instructor, and I am joined today by another yoga instructor, which you will hear a little bit about in today's interview, Dr. Renee Thomas. Dr. Thomas is an Australian-born family preventative and lifestyle medicine physician. She completed medical school here in Australia at Monash University and completed her residency in family and preventative medicine, as well as a master's of public health at the Loma Linda University in the United States. Renee has completed research around clinical lifestyle medicine and has actually been engaged in developing lifestyle medicine and curriculum in medical education. She's presented at numerous conferences on evidence-based and clinically relevant nutrition and health, both in the U.S. and internationally. So Renee's professional content largely focuses on evidence-based nutritional medicine for both physicians and patients. And I think as will be incredibly apparent in today's conversation, she really does strive to be a compassionate and understanding support system to patients and individuals that she is providing education to. You know, she really works to help individuals un uncover underlying issues and works with them to achieve the greatest health and happiness. What's particularly unique and really struck me in this interview, keep your ear out for her, actually exploring why an individual might want to engage in any sort of lifestyle or behavior change, which so clearly parallels the values that we are always discussing in terms of mental health and well-being, being really clear on your values, what you want your life to look like and why, and then figure out how you can take committed action towards evoking that vision for yourself. Dr. Thomas will provide you with some incredible tips around moving towards a healthy lifestyle. She describes the blue zone that she is connected to in the United States. It's the only blue zone in the United States. And a blue zone is an area where individuals live for an extended time period, often over 100 years, but not just living that, living those years in good health. So she'll introduce you to the lifestyle pillars and she'll give us tips and tricks to evoke those in our own lives daily, you know, and ultimately with the sleep eight hours a day. But without further ado, let me introduce you to Dr. Renee Thomas now. Dr. Renee Thomas. 
Thomas, welcome so much to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am delighted to have you here and to get to have the time to chat about the amazing work you're doing and the wisdom you have around health and well-being. Well, thank you so much for the invite. I'm super excited to be here. I love, you know, being able to share things that I'm passionate about with people that think the same way. So absolutely, thank you. With that, you know, there, there are a number of areas that I think you just have expertise in that I, I definitely do not, but that I know is there and I know will really align with listeners around how we actually engage in you know, a preventative in terms of preventative of illness lifestyle before things get so tough and things that we're doing every day, you know, we're eating every day. We're like putting foods into our bodies, moving our bodies, maybe, maybe not. I know that these are areas that, you know, a lot more about. So I'm really excited to dive in. Awesome. Yeah. I, a uh, little, little bit of passion in those areas. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Renee, would you mind just sharing before we get started a little bit about who you are and, you know, the training you've undertaken to be able to sit, you know, in this seat of wisdom for us today? Absolutely. So um, as you introduced me, I am a medical doctor. So I went through traditional medical school. I actually trained in Australia. And then I came to the United States. Um, I first did an internship actually at True North Health, which is a medically supervised water fasting and plant-based kind of health retreat center. So I did my internship there. And then I came to Loma Linda in California and I did a combined residency. I did it in family medicine and preventive medicine and general public health. And then um, uh, just recently, I did finish up with that and I took a uh, board exam. So I'm board certified now in family medicine, preventive medicine. And I also took my lifestyle medicine board. So triple board certified. It's a lot. I did my master's of public health as well while I was at Loma Linda. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with Loma Linda, it is the only blue zone uh, in America. So learned an awful lot um, on the way there and definitely there and continue to kind of share my passion and growth and learning in the area of lifestyle medicine. Would you mind just sharing a bit about, um, yeah, I guess what a blue zone is and where it is and, and how that's, you know, relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so blue zones, the most common um, book or definition that I'm aware of anyway is by Dan Buettner. And they're the areas in the world where the most people live to over 100 or are most likely to live to 100 and not just living to that age, but living in good health until that age. And that's the most important thing. And Loma Linda, where I did my residency training is uh, one of, it's actually the only United States blue zone. And they're pretty proud of that. And there's a lot of factors that come down to why um, Loma Linda is so healthy and so well um, long lived. Mostly uh, nutritional factors are very important. Um, and those social connections, uh, physical activity, and a lot of what we would call the pillars of lifestyle medicine. Could you talk us through the pillars of lifestyle medicine? I'm gathering we've got three of them already. So <laughs> yeah, are they? Absolutely. Um, so nutrition, huge component, uh, physical activity, stress management, avoiding toxic substances. So things like alcohol and smoking and illicit drugs, um, you know, connection and purpose with others and stress management and quality sleep. Ah, and that's interesting that you mentioned quality sleep at the end, because I know that this is something that more and more people are struggling with too. I mean, we're struggling with all of these areas, but yeah. what do you, what is it about quality sleep? Quality sleep. 
I don't even know. We could talk about that for the entire podcast, how important (laughs) sleep is. I think it's really, really underrated, but for the average person, I mean, that's a time to reset, restore, you know, minimize some of those stress. The first thing I always think of when someone's not sleeping, also known as me in residency, stress levels are at through the roof. You know, you can't recover, then you're tired during the day. And for a lot of people, they'll then turn to, you know, less ideal eating habits, caffeine reliance. And that's just on a basic level, let alone going into the kind of biochemical, biophysical changes of, you know, sleep, especially chronic sleep deprivation that we see in a lot of shift workers or people that just are struggling with sleep. And it's interesting. So the reason I'm like grabbing that and so curious about it is I know that that's a marker for, um, psychological ill health as well you know generally in most psychological conditions we would see changes in sleep patterns not necessarily um positive or helpful Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to hear it affects everything it is definitely underrated and I'll be totally honest I definitely underrated it earlier in my career I mean I'm so passionate about nutrition and physical activity that sometimes the other pillars they fall aside a little bit and then I got really passionate about helping people with smoking cessation and so that was kind of my next exciting one and then sleep's kind of been a new one that came in Um, I did a lot of my sleep training later in my residency and going in and kind of learning more about sleep apnea and the effects that things like that have on their health um, really opened my eyes that I should probably focus on talking to people a bit more about their sleep rather than just like, do you sleep okay? Like, you know, actually having practical solutions and helping people out with that. Oh, incredible. Incredible. That's really interesting to note. And maybe at the end, we could grab a tip for individuals who might be, who might be struggling and, you know, the passion around, you know, moving your body and food. So whole food, plant-based, this is my understanding of what really underpins this, this pillar of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, um, food and nutrition. What does that mean? You know, whole food, plant-based, what is it about that? What is it? Absolutely. I mean, between you and me and obviously everyone listening now, but they need a better marketing term, whole food plant-based. Like, could we have got a longer, more of a mouthful name that's confusing for everyone? I don't know if I have a good suggestion what it should be called because it's it's a very descriptive term, but I don't know. It just doesn't have the same like catchiness, does it? But it's a bit boring. A a little bit. (laughs) Um, And even I I often call it like WFPB. And then with my accent, who knows what acronym I'm saying? And it's just a disaster. So (laughs) I generally try and keep things simple the way that I practice and the way that I explain lifestyle and health. And for me, whole food plant-based is thinking about your, your new food groups, really. So you'll have your whole grains and preferably intact. So things like brown rice, quinoa, millet, oats and buckwheat, for example, then you'll have your legumes or your, you know, your beans, your chickpeas, your split peas, your peas, your beans, your soy, your lentils. Then you'll have fruits and vegetables. I'm hoping most people know what they are, but you can flavor it with herbs and spices, uh, fresh and dried. And then you would have nuts and seeds. And from, from a medical perspective, when I'm really looking at especially disease treatment and disease reversal in a lot of chronic cases, we often then talk about SOS free or salt, oil, and sugar free. And that really kind of takes it to the next level. And that's what I generally have as a prescriptive, you know, a nutritional prescription in terms of something that's actually going to make a difference medically. So salt and sugar, salt, oil, and sugar free. When would you prescribe that, you know, in what sort of circumstances? Absolutely. So my general recommendations is to follow the least restrictive diet possible that gets you your health results, right? If uh, And some people are kind of anomalies where they can eat whatever they want and their health doesn't seem to be affected, but the vast majority of us have to eat at least 
pretty well to be healthy. And I think for most people that would be predominantly plant-based eating with a lot of those foods that I was talking about with whole food plant-based. Now, if I have someone coming to me, the most typical ones that I would see would be type two diabetes, hypertension, um, even sometimes autoimmune disease. Some of these really chronic diseases that respond well to nutrition. And they're sometimes the people that they've already tried a plant-based diet. You know, they've already, maybe they've even kind of dabbled in whole food plant-based and they're just not quite getting the results. Hypertension and salt would be a perfect example someone's eating a lot of whole foods, but they're salting and putting, you know, so, uh, soy sauce, they're eating more processed foods and they're getting a lot more sodium in their diet. It just doesn't always work for everyone. So that might be someone else. I would start thinking that when someone really wants intensive disease reversal, um, that can be a lot more challenging. And that's often where that really strict, you know, whole food plant-based SOS free comes in because it works really well for a lot of people. Um, and sometimes being a bit more lax sometimes means that results are a little bit more lackluster. That's really powerful to think that in these chronic illnesses and chronic, because obviously an individual has suffered and struggled for mm-hmm. an extended period of time that we can start to see a reversal of mm-hmm. impact of an effects through diet, something mm-hmm. that actually doesn't involve maybe the level of intervention that, um, that is commonly prescribed Absolutely. And I think you, you raise a really um, key point when you say, because often the, the typical medical treatment is also quite a lot. It's, you know, people sometimes think that this kind of nutritional pattern is extreme, but some of these type two diabetics, they're injecting insulin multiple times a day. I feel like that's pretty extreme to manage your health. And if you're in a position where that nutrition can potentially take you off that insulin. Well, it, to me, that feels less extreme than having to inject that medication every day. I mean, everyone has their personal choice. If they'd rather do that and eat whatever they want, that's their life, not mine. But a lot of people are coming to me because they don't want to do that. They want to come off medications. They want to feel better. You know, they want to lose weight, come off their medications, get rid of these chronic diseases. And a lot of people are really motivated and willing to do anything, including eating well. So it's really nice to, to see that um, inspiration from that person. How do people go about making this change? Because I think mm-hmm. the context is a lot of us maybe don't live in blue zones. Mm-hmm. So the cultural element and, you know, because um, there's not such flash marketing around whole food plant-based <laughs> diets, yeah. although, you know, it is becoming more common, but how would people start to make changes in their lives? Where, where would they begin? Absolutely. I think a lot, um, a lot of what I do when talking to people about nutrition is kind of falls under the umbrella of motivational interviewing. You know, what is important? Like, what are your drivers? I think that it's really hard to make a change, especially a dietary change in a culture that's not supportive of it, like you had mentioned, or where it's foreign or new or different, um, relying on that internal drive. Like, why do you want to do it can be really helpful, especially in moments that are more challenging or stressful when it might be easy to be like, oh, I'll just, you know, throw in the towel, whatever, I'll eat whatever, but really clean clinging on to that reason why you're doing it. And a lot of people that are coming to me, obviously as a doctor, it's health related. And that makes it a lot easier to stick with those ideas. Now, if there's someone on like also what you're asking me is how does someone get started a lot of that is trying to for me I always try and find the pathway of least resistance right so if you look at what they're currently eating and you know talking with someone what do you think you can change and kind of get it from them so some people it's going to be adding more fruits and vegetables other people a really common one that people can often get started with is switching out dairy products for plant-based options because there's so many on the market these days you know that milk difference really isn't a big deal anymore you know when I was a kid we used to have to make soy milk um, and that is 
definitely not as nice as the soy milk on the market these days. You know, there's a big difference. There's so many things available, or, you know, maybe finding one plant-based recipe and having that one night a week, you know, um, meat-free Mondays or something like that. That's how I encourage most people to get started. Even, you know, don't even underrate the small changes. Like if someone's having, say, one of the things I commonly talk about is if you're making uh, spaghetti bolognese, um, you know, grate in some carrot, grate in some zucchini, put in some beans and kind of dilute out that meat. It's still going to taste pretty familiar. It's going to taste similar. It's going to feel similar, but you'll start seeing those health changes and health results. And you'll find over time that you can gradually progress to, you know, cutting the meat, even, you know, you go from half to maybe a third to maybe a quarter, then all of a sudden you're like, you know, I don't know if we really need this in here anymore. And it becomes um, habits. It becomes easy. It's familiar. And that's kind of the way I encourage most people to get started. That's incredible, isn't it? That it's just this process of slowly, slowly making these subtle changes. The spaghetti bolognese being a perfect example of something that's, you know, gradual steps so much so that you don't even perhaps notice when, when the changes is fully, you know, realized. Mm-hmm. And you can do the same thing with exercise or physical activity. You know, sometimes people laugh because I've had people that come to me. I'm like, okay, we're going to do one minute of exercise three times a week. And it feels like nothing. And I'm like, well, it's three minutes more, you know, three or four minutes more than you're doing now. And, you know, and then the next week they come back and it, it, it can sometimes having small goals can fuel that success because we like doing well. We like succeeding. Right. So if I said to you do 30 minutes a day, every day this week, it's probably not going to happen if they're going from zero, but they can come back the next week and be like, yes, I did my three minutes. Okay, cool. We're going to double it. They come back the following way. I did my six minutes and it starts to feel good. And humans thrive on doing well and succeeding. And it just builds from there. So I like setting goals that are realistic. Often I tell people to halve whatever they think they can do just because I want to see them successful. And because I know that that leads to further change. Yeah, that's that's interesting because this is what I talk about with clients all of the time is how can we actually almost change our sense of self, like break something down that's Mm -hmm. so small. And if you're moving your body for one minute, two minute every day, you're suddenly someone who exercises daily, you know, or moves Mm -hmm. your body and same with meditation and Mm -hmm. that having goals, there's some amazing research that shows people who have their goals are more likely to reach Mm -hmm. the big goal in the end, because Mm -hmm. you get motivation from, like you said, achieving and like, you know, kind of finding success. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong. There are people that are, you know, all in, but they're more the minority. But if someone's an all in person, it's important to recognize that, that they have to go all in and then they feel success in that too. So I really think that flexibility is the number one thing and never feeling bad. Like a lot of people say they're doing really well on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday, something happens. Well, that doesn't mean that Friday that happens to, you know, it has to happen again. And it's just, okay, cool. That happened and moving forward and not kind of dwelling on things when they don't go well. Cause that's life and life happens and we can only do the best that we can incredible that's such a reminder of being human hey like that we are perfectly (laughs) imperfect we'll have slips and we can respond to them absolutely absolutely humans (laughs) yeah humans with the physical activity element because this is something that again being humans like we are Mm -hmm. like we Uh, evolved in such a way that we, you know, historically have wanted to conserve our energy. So we're not always, you know, jumping off the couch easily. Mm -hmm. Is there a specific type of physical activity that is more beneficial than others? Or is it whatever brings you most joy or gets you moving? What are, what's your advice there? 
Sure. I, I think I probably have a couple of opinions um, on what you're saying, because I totally agree with you. The first thing I always say, if someone's not doing any movement, do whatever you're going to do. The best movement is the one that you're going to do. And usually for most people, that's finding movement that brings joy. And I love that because I don't want people to feel like they're exercising because realistically, no, not that many people love to exercise, right? But people do like to move in joyful ways. And I think finding that and incorporating that life, something that, you know, you're actually excited to do, you know, not waiting to, you know, it's the end of the day and you're like, oh, I haven't gone and walked on the treadmill or something. I just say that because I don't really like walking on the treadmill. I find it so boring. <laughs> um, that would be something for me that's like, it's not joyful for me. I'm not you know, getting out of bed to do it. Whereas finding something that you really like, you're more likely to do it because you actually want to do it. Um, obviously I always try and talk from a medical perspective though. And I think that there is something to be said for incorporating strength training in some way or form, especially as people get older, a lot of people, um, don't realize that a lot of the problems with aging come to just muscle weakness and muscle wasting away. Being able to get out of a chair being like, is such an important quality of life that is so underrated until you lose it. And so I think that there's a balance of having something that's weight bearing, something that's um, strength building and something that's cardiovascular and something that's flexibility to really just incorporate all those elements of what human bodies are supposed to do and to keep them functional for as long as possible. Because the more functional your body is, the better quality of life you're going to have. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm sitting here biased going, oh, yoga. <laughs> you can bring it all Love yoga. Love <laughs> yoga. Absolutely. Yoga is great for representing that all really a well-rounded um, physical activity. You really are getting that strength, flexibility and cardiovascular all built in one. So I'm totally with you. I'm yoga teacher trained. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? And it's interesting to me, you know, I, I suppose I knew that as we age, there were changes to our mobility and mm -hmm. I hadn't actually held, oh, okay, this could be strength-based more than anything mm -hmm. else. And then it is muscle weakness. So that's something I think for all of us to be kind of like holding if maybe that hasn't been an area that's excited us as much kind of going, okay, well, that's something I need to keep an eye on and be mindful of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's kind of two um, interesting things with regard to that. Um, it sounds a little crazy, but one of the biggest driving factors to being admitted to a nursing home is not being able to use the restroom independently. And a lot of that comes to the fact that they do not have the strength to get out of bed and walk to the bathroom, sit down and stand back up again. And it's completely strength-based, which is just crazy to think that that's the difference from independent living to having to live in, you know, assisted care. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with assisted care, but that's not really many people's goal in life. Most people want to stay at home for as long as possible. And then going back to kind of blue zones in La Melinda, there was a documentary out. It's probably, it was probably a few years old. I remember watching it. I think I was in medical school and they um, showed a test where if you could um, sit down on the floor and stand up without using your hands, um, it was directly correlated to uh, living longer and living well. And they also then correlated the amount of um, lean muscle on your thigh to living longer in Loma Linda as well. And that's in a population of long-lived individuals that even longer, you know, the superstars in that area had more quad muscle and more mobility to be able to sit down and stand up. So it just sounds so crazy that we talk about something that we take so for granted, such as sitting down and standing up, but it really does reflect that importance of physical activity on, you know, your quality of life. Incredible. So listeners, <laughs> I'm trying, to, trying to plan how you're going to move your body for one minute every day. Yep, absolutely. Um, 
So with the strength, do we need then like protein in the form of meat to be able to build that strength? Because that's an area I'm leading into some myth debunking a little bit, <laughs> some seeds, but, but this is, this is something that concerns people. Like how mm-hmm. will they, you know, get the protein for strength? Do they need meat? Do they need dairy? Like what, how does this relate to this plant-based diet? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of wonderful marketing out there getting people very nervous about protein. Um, I mean, what is needed for good health is really overstated in the community. If we really strip it back and look at, say, the World Health Organization, adequate protein intake is about 5% of calorie intake. So if you're thinking a standard 2000 calorie diet, it's about a hundred calories from protein or 25 grams a day. And to eat 2000 calories and not get 25 grams of protein per day, you pretty much have to eat just oil or just sugar. Like even bananas pretty much have that much protein. If you're eating too, not not that I'm recommending doing that, but if you were to eat that (laughs) many, like you're going to meet your protein requirements because even most fruits and vegetables have 5% of their calories from protein or more. Some of the dried fruits, some of the more sugary fruits, maybe a little less, but that's to put it in context of how easy it is. And so most, um, some of the examples like rice is 8%, corn is 11%, oatmeal is 15%, beans are 27%. So to get 5% is extremely, extremely easy. Um, recommendations, most countries have doubled those because countries, you know, their nutritional recommendations are to ensure that the majority of the population are going to be in definite safe intakes. We don't just want to aim for adequate because that means that some people may not be getting enough because of individual variation. So if you're looking at general consensus, maybe 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, or so that's your weight in pounds divided by 2.2 for our metric, uh, not metric. I'm trying to learn. I live in the U S but I still think kilograms. Um, I'm, I'm kind of learning. It's, it's, it's things like miles that really get me, but they're unusual. They're super unusual. But yeah, if you think of kind of your stock standard 70 kilo male that we base everything on, because that's what male medical students used to be. Um, if you think of it that way, we're going to get about 56 grams um, of protein per day for the average male. Athletes a little higher, maybe 1.2 grams of uh, protein per kilogram, which would take it up to say 84 grams for our subject uh, male that we we're just talking about. And that athlete part really is reflected more by the increase in their caloric needs because they're exercising so much more than the average person. So the percentage of protein doesn't really change that much. So I guess... Um, you almost have to be nutritionally deficit to not get enough protein. That's pretty much what we see. And medically, we we don't see protein um, malnourishment or protein deficiency in the absence of calorie insufficiency. So someone has to be starving to be protein deficient from a medical perspective. Yeah. So, so this idea that then, you know, that that we need to be eating um, these protein dense foods like meats, it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really pair. Like you could theoretically, you know, be eating bananas, (laughs) obviously not recommended, but um, you know, a full-time banana diet and actually meet your protein needs. Maybe there'd be some other areas of struggle, but, but it's not necessarily about consuming high protein food as we've been told to believe. Mm-hmm. I think that there is variations in individuals where some probably do better with, you know, maybe a little higher protein than others. Some people do better with lower protein than others and just trying to find out the individual. But as an example, it is grossly over-exaggerated. And the fact that that the argument to needing meat based on protein requirements is very easy to debunk. We have a lot of really high plant-based protein foods um, that even when we look at studies that talk about, you know, higher protein diets being associated with risk for diseases, when they're 
they're substituted for plant-based proteins, that is ameliorated. It doesn't exist anymore. So if someone is really, really wanting to follow a high protein diet for whatever their personal reason is, not that I'm saying I'm recommending it, but if they want to, it still doesn't give that uh, leeway to allow meat in because there is so many plant-based options, especially, you know, today when we're getting more and more plant-based foods on the market, it's just, it's just unnecessary. And what about dairy? Because um, I am from North America, so I don't know if you guys had it in Australia, but the got milk campaign, I grew up with um, all these celebrities uh... having a milk mustache across their upper lip. And so, you know, and again, campaign marketing. Um, and you mentioned earlier that, that swapping to plant-based milk was an easy swap. So where does dairy stand? Absolutely. Well, I think most people think when they think dairy, their concern isn't necessarily dairy foods, their concern is calcium, right? So the question really is, and then when I ask them, you know, if you further go forward, okay, why are you worried about calcium? Well, the question really is about bone health and bone strength, right? And that's where that question comes in. And dairy consumption per se isn't really associated with stronger bones when you look at the literature, despite the high levels of calcium that it contains. Calcium is essential, but dairy, not so much. And when we look at a lot of the countries with high dairy intakes, of course, they can be confounding in other things, but that alone isn't enough to say prevent osteoporosis and fracture risks when we look at countries with high dairy intake. So it's not necessarily saying, I hear, I hear people saying, oh, high dairy causes osteoporosis. We don't have that evidence, but we definitely don't have the correlation that high dairy alone is sufficient enough to improve bone health. Calcium, surprisingly to most people, is actually better absorbed from plants. So if we look at, say, plants to milk, it's about 50% of the calcium from plants is absorbed compared to about 30% of that from milk. And so a cup of chopped kale is really the equivalent to a cup of milk in absorbable calcium levels. And so, yeah, crazy, huh? I think that One thing that I I am mindful of, because in Adventist health studies, they did show that plant-based eaters with low calcium intakes did have poor bone health. And that comes up a lot as an argument against that plant-based nutrition. But when when that study was subdivided and they looked at plant-based eaters that got sufficient calcium, so for most people, we're talking 1,000 to 1,300 milligrams per day. Although keep in mind, the World Health Organization recommends 400 to 500, which is a lot less than the dairy industries. Um, And they also, in World health organization say that those numbers are higher because uh, when people have more animal protein and more sodium, their calcium absorption goes down. And so that's why the recommendations are so high in countries that consume that. So Western countries like the US, Australia, if you go to more Asian countries where they don't really consume as much of those foods, the calcium recommendations are much lower. It's very interesting. It's incredibly interesting. And I guess it shows how, you know, there's an absorption component. So what we're putting into our body isn't necessarily what our body then, um, then utilizes and that different forms have a different effect or impact. So being mindful of that and that that has a cascading effect by the sounds. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, consuming more, um, animal products means that you actually need, for instance, more calcium, if I'm getting that right, or absorbable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the recommended dietary intake for calcium in the US is based on calcium from dairy foods, which is an absorption. They actually use an absorption rate of 25% um, meat. And that's where that number is so high. But if we do it, so it it comes down to an absorbable calcium of more like, you know, 250 to 325, despite these thousand milligram numbers we see thrown around a lot. When we look at plant-based or vegan eaters that consume over, I think it's 525 milligrams of calcium per day, they have no increase 
increased risk in fractures. And that's what people are caring about. Like I said to you in the beginning, it's not the dairy we're worried about. It's not even really the calcium, it's the bone health and fracture risk. And so we really have to make sure we're looking at the right data when we're trying to answer the question. That's incredible. And that's such a good reminder. And that comes back to what you said in the beginning, like when you're asking people, why, why do you want to make these changes? Like what is underlying um, your values essentially here? And this is in my work, we are always talking about values. Like what's the why that's going to drive you to do something, even when there might be uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, you know, um, sensations going on, you need to know the why. So coming back then, uh, Renee, to to how individuals might, you know, perhaps supplement. Is this a thing? Cause you mentioned vegan diets, for instance. And I know yeah. that there are some things that maybe all diets don't necessarily pro- um, provide. Is there anything we need mm-hmm. to be mindful of there? Absolutely. I think one of the hardest, hardest things when it comes down to talking about supplementation is that it's so challenging to know what someone is actually taking in and not only taking in, what are they absorbing? Right. And so it's very challenging because we can look at nutrient databases and try and get an understanding of what's actually in our food. We know it's changed over the course of years, um, whether or not we're getting enough. And I think a lot of that, honestly, again, is marketing and fear-based advertising, you know, trying to make you think that you're not getting enough. Um, I'm not really a huge fan of supplementing for the sake of supplementing. I completely support, you know, working in, I I have that luxury that I work in a clinical setting and I can order things like labs and look for deficiencies. Um, And I have zero problems with supplementing there. I don't mind people supplementing things when they're sick, as long as they're evidence-based. But in terms of what would someone look for, probably the number one thing I look for, and this is in plant-based and non-plant-based eaters is B12 deficiency. I see it a lot in clinical practice and it's so cheap and easy to remedy the problem um, that I just think that it's worth checking on every single person. And it's kind of an underestimated, we see it even in um, some of the cardiovascular pathways, B12 deficiency coming up, you know, a lot of, a lot of weird kind of symptoms. And I, you know, I check someone's levels and they're nearly undetectable a lot of the time. And so I think that's the first one that I really think about, Um, you know, vitamin D has kind of exploded in recent years of its popularity and its evidence base. And there's definitely some good supporting evidence there. Now, whether that should be from sunlight or from supplementation is obviously a hot debate. Um, they're kind of two ones I really look for and test a lot. Um, zinc deficiency is one that comes up a little bit. Um, but like I said, I work in a setting um, and being when I was at Loma Linda, you know, 50% of the population is vegetarian. 50% of that is plant entirely plant-based or vegan. And I didn't really see a difference in, um, you know, nutritional deficiencies in the population. So I think for most people, your best bet is eating as many fruits and vegetables as you can get in your mouth and kind of going from there. Yeah. And maybe checking in with, um, you know, one's medical doctor, if they do want to have some bloods done to actually see, um, how, how their levels are looking, that it's not necessarily a blanket statement that you will, or you won't be deficient in certain areas. Absolutely. And I hope that that grows in a number of years. I mean, I know that things like omega-3 fatty acid testing have kind of come, but they're still a little controversial. And a lot of people do come to the clinic and they say, I want to be tested for all my vitamins and minerals. But honestly, we're quite limited. Like I can't test your vitamin C, for example, like we don't have reliable testing. So it's it's really challenging to give, you know, an evidence-based medically informed answer to that question. So often I feel like a lot of us end up defaulting like, well, as long as it's safe, you know, what's the harm? And we come into that a lot. Omega-3 being a perfect example of that. Should we supplement or not? Well, the evidence just isn't really that clear at this point in time. Um, And that varies between individuals and it just gets very complicated. (laughs) 
<laughs> very complicated yet there's some very clear things that we can do uh, mm -hmm. you know you've given us um real i think actionable steps in terms of how we might start making a transition to more of a plant-based diet you know the components mm -hmm. of a plant-based diet and really like clear um evidence as to why you know for for our health and well-being and as you said it's not just even about living long you know living to a hundred it's about living well you know and trying to yeah. maintain our independence in terms of how our nutrition and our physical activity will impact us you know we talked about social connection stress management mm -hmm. sleep could we just have a couple of sleep tips before we wrap up <laughs> Sleep. Oh, where do I even start? I think that modern technology is number one on what is making our sleep a problem. I mean, everyone knows someone that's in bed on their phone and we just know that's not conducive to health. And I think a lot of that, the evidence behind that is going to start coming out more. But I mean, I would see people very commonly that are talking to me about sleep problems. I'm like, okay, talk to me about your sleep. And, you know, they're staying up super late watching TV or on their phone. They're snacking late into the night. Um, you know, their bedroom is noisy and lights, their bed's uncomfortable, they're hot or they're cold and working such long hours. I mean, this was a big thing for me. Often I would have eight hours between shifts. Well, how am I going to get eight hours sleep? I haven't even got home from work yet. I haven't eaten. I haven't de-stressed. I haven't done anything. But then I have to be up again and, you know, maybe I want to exercise before work and suddenly I'm down to five or six hours sleep, right? So a lot of people are really, and I have respect for them because a lot of people are really trying to stay on top of things and they're having to work such long hours just to make ends meet. It's um, one of my favorite doctors once told me that, you know, you have to have at least two hours to yourself for optimal health. And I think that's really true. And it came down to things like, you know, being able to grocery shop, being able to prepare food, being able to do physical activity, to be able to do stress management, to be able to, you know, maybe have an extra half an hour sleep. It's a lot of time. And a lot of people just don't have that. So I think there's something to be said for optimizing everything you can to get good sleep because it puts you in the right step. Everything is harder when you're tired. You're going to make poor choices. You're not going to want to exercise. You're, you're not functioning optimally at work. Everything really comes down to it. And it was something it took me a long time to really appreciate that um, trying to fit everything into one day at the sacrifice of my sleep was meaning that I was a less optimal human during the day. Yeah, that's a, a really important way of putting it, isn't it? Like being less optimal human. And, and that we're sacrificing so much in terms of trying to get it all done that if we can somehow carve out a little bit more time for ourselves, for sleep, that that's going to be really impactful. Obviously, you know, constraints around those who might be working such long hours and shift work, mm -hmm. but that where we can, you know, shutting down devices, starting to mm -hmm. turn our attention to to sleep, ensuring we've got a nice sleep environment that is dark and cozy mm -hmm. and, you know, proper, proper temperatures is a really good start. Mm -hmm. Maybe just even having this um, awareness, you know, as we sit here talking about it, listeners, maybe actually in your mind going, well, what can I do? Because often we know some of the answers to our own challenges if we're given the space or the prompt to reflect. So maybe having a think about your sleep listeners and what you might do. Uh, I love that so much. It's so true. I think that a lot of people, and I like to talk about this a lot um, when seeing patients, is really getting that power back. And it's it, it sounds kind of comical, but it was how I was trained very early from one of my mentors. And I don't talk that much when you come to see me as a patient. And I think the average doctor like in studies interrupts within the first minute. And often I just don't say anything. And people kind of like, you can see they stop talking and they kind of look at me and they're waiting. And I'm like, no, like deep down, a lot of people know what's wrong with them. And if you listen for long enough, they often know how to fix the problem 
problem too. They just needed a space to reflect and someone to validate what they were thinking and know that it's the right thing to do. And I find that an awful lot. I mean, someone that's coming to see me, I've known them for five minutes. They've known themselves for how many years? They, like, most people know themselves better than anyone else would. It's just getting that time, like you say, that time to reflect, that time to get it all out there and actually be like, oh yeah, like that makes sense. And then figure out where to go forward from that. And I just feel like kind of a facilitator sometimes. Well, thank you for holding the space for us and offering us this place, you know, to, to start to get our cogs turning and look at how we might actually engage in, you know, lifestyle medicine, so to speak, you know, taking these pillars and applying them in our own lives, particularly how we might make change in what we're putting into our bodies and how we're moving our bodies and resting our bodies. So Renee, how can, how can people connect more with you? You know, where, where can people find your work and your offerings? Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Um, pretty simple. All my stuff is at Dr. Renee Thomas. I can definitely send you over links to kind of social media, website. And then um, I'm also the medical director at Fasting Escape, which is in uh, Orange County. But I see people all over the country via the wonders of telemedicine. And so um, if anyone wanted, you know, medical advice or something, they're welcome to go over there and book an appointment as well. Amazing. Yes. So listeners, um, don't grab pens while you're driving. <laughs> I will put it all in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, Renee, we'll put all the links to your website and your socials in the show notes so that listeners, you can connect to Renee and the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, mm-hmm. for your time and your wisdom, you know, this afternoon, this morning, today, <laughs> we all really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I love what you're doing. I'm absolutely honored to be part of it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's absolutely my pleasure. I always feel very humbled. So thank you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Thomas as much as I did. What incredible wisdom and I think a real anchoring in practical elements, you know, her description of how we might slowly integrate, you know, more vegetables into our dinner and how we might start moving our bodies in a really manageable way resonated deeply with me. And I hope it was impactful for you too, as well as highlighting something that I think a lot of us know, you know, how important sleep is and some tips and tricks to ensure your comfort, both in the bedroom and in the routine and life balances leading up to sleep. I thought this idea of having two hours to ourselves to do lifing, you know, be it grocery shopping, relaxing every single day is incredible, you know, certainly aspirational. It may not be something that we're necessarily able to achieve yet, but maybe set that as a marker of something that is actually vital for your well-being and something that you can work towards. If you can cultivate 30 minutes, perhaps every single day where you slow down, where you read a book, where you have a cup of tea, and maybe at that time, even doing the journaling or the reflective practice that you need to understand the why of other, you know, lifestyle changes that you may choose to make if they do serve you. So again, if you head to drreneethomas.com, you'll be able to connect with Renee and see all of the work that she is um, offering her services or head to drcaitlin.com to grab the show notes. I will put all of Renee's links there, including her social media. I will look forward to jumping into your earbuds next week and wish you a wonderful and healthful week ahead. Bye for now.
Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.